play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. This is Your Last Meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. Every episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would eat for their last meal, and then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Nancy Pearl. Uh, So Nancy Pearl is a celebrity librarian based in Seattle. Nancy Pearl went from being Tulsa's librarian to Seattle's librarian, and now she is America's librarian uh, ever since she came out with a line of best-selling books called Book Lust. Uh, She regularly talks books on NPR's Morning Edition and NPR affiliate stations in Seattle and Tulsa. Nancy Pearl is the 50th winner of the Women's National Book Association Award. She was named 2011 Librarian of the Year by Library Journal, uh, and she speaks around the country often to huge crowds, standing room only. But accolades aside, you know you've really made it as a celebrity librarian when you've been transformed into an action figure. Yes, this action figure, which is discontinued, I I am sad to say, and it's a very weird feeling to to have been discontinued. That is sad. It came out in 2003. It's about five inches, and it has an action, which is the amazing shushing action. So if you push the little button on the back, then the finger will come up very close to her nose, and you could imagine her saying shush. Oh, so there's no audible shush. There's no audible shush. And many children who have seen it and played with it, have asked me why she's picking her nose. (laughs) (laughs) Now, to truly be famous, you have to provoke some kind of controversy. And somehow this action figure of a librarian did just that. There were librarians around the world who were offended by the shushing mechanism. They said that they thought it gave librarians a bad name. Going back to your action figure, yes. uh, there was some controversy yes. about the shushing mechanism right. with librarians not liking that stereotype. Yes. So my theory is that there's about 23 librarians around the world who have no sense of humor. Uh-huh. And I heard from every one of them. There's also a band named after you, a bluegrass band, at least back in the day, yes. called the Nancy Pearls. Yes, yes. Um, now, this was... Uh, this appeared suddenly on um, Wikipedia years and years and years ago. And it was um, a couple of librarians in Australia in Sydney. And it was just so much fun to have that. And I kind of don't think they're doing it anymore. Also discontinued. Yes, right. Yes. Yes. I can't even express into words how sad I am that I cannot find any sign of the Nancy Pearls anywhere online. Like the only mentions are on her website and other interviews. Uh, So unfortunately, I cannot share the musical stylings of the Nancy Pearls with you. But I like to imagine that it's equal parts banjo and shushing. After decades of working as a children's librarian, Nancy is no longer a classic librarian. She doesn't work in a library any longer. Now she travels around the country speaking. She does her radio segments. She's almost finished a novel that's called George and Lizzie that will be released by Simon & Schuster in September. But Nancy has always known that she wanted to work amongst the stacks to be one with the Dewey Decimal System. You knew that you wanted to be a librarian when you were, what, 10 years old? When I was 10 years old, and it was because I I was very well taken care of by the librarians, the children's librarians at my local library in Detroit. And they really gave me all the, 
um, real, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration. They gave me all the love and support that I felt I needed that seemed to me to be lacking. And I wanted to do for other kids what they did for me, which is open the world of books. And what a wonderful gift they gave me. Yeah, I've, I've read that you've mentioned that you had a hard childhood and that books saved your life. Yeah, you know, that's probably a bit of an overstatement. On, on good days, I think, oh, that's an overstatement. On bad days, I think, no, that's exactly right. Because because the way I use books as a child and to a, still a great degree, the way I use books today is to escape. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that I've I've escaped into other worlds and learned so much about people and places and and history. And that's what books still do for me. I'm sure this is the number one question. Well, I'm sure there's three questions you get. I was thinking of what I thought you were asked all the time, but I'm going to ask one of them. How many books do you read? <laughs> well, I, I, I basically, reading is, is my job. Um, and that's a whole other conversation because that changes the nature of, of your experience if it's your job and you're not just doing it because you love to read. Right. Um, so that's all I do is read. I don't cook. I don't garden. I do nothing. I, I, I yeah, you know, I, I a say, lady of leisure. A lady of leisure, right. I, I don't have a life. Other people do all those other things. I just read. But I only read the books I want to read that I'm loving. So if I start a book and I don't like it, I immediately put it down. People are sometimes shocked at that. But in fact, Rachel, you could, the book is going to be there. You could always pick it up again and try it. And there are several notable examples of books that I didn't like at first, or even on a second try or third try that I ended up loving. So at at the moment, when you're reading a book and you're not liking it, Probably probably 70 to 80% of why we like a book or not is due to our mood. Yes, I 100% agree. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite books was like that for me. I tried to read, um, I always forget the title, the Jonathan Saffron Four book. Uh huh. Everything is Illuminated. Yes, or... everything is Illuminated. Right. Tried to start reading it, couldn't get into it at all. Picked it up a year or two later and couldn't believe that I didn't like it because I love it yep. so much. Yep. Yeah. That ha- now that happened to me with the George R. R. Martin series with the um, Song of Fire and Ice, or Ice and Fire, that was is now the HBO series, but years ago it was just books. And I started the first one over a period of three years, three different times, and didn't like it, any of those. I read the same darn 50 pages. And then the fourth time, or the third time, whatever, I picked it up and started reading it. And just like you, the like same lightning. experience, like lightning. I thought, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. And then went on and read the next, at that time, four more, I think. You never answered the question. Oh, how many how books, many books do, you do you read? <laughs> so it's, impos- it's an impossible question. Yeah, it's an impossible question. On the average per month, I mean, oh, is it like month? five, 50? Oh, no, it's not. It's not 50. Because Oh, oh, Rachel. I'm really it's, pushing it's, you I know you statistics. are. It's impossible. Now no. I'm like sliding the chair into the corner. Now I'm book shaming you in my own way. <laughs> um, I'd say I probably read three books a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's a lot of reading. Yeah. As a lover of food, I get disappointed when there's no mention of food in a book in fiction. I'm thinking, when are these people going to eat? Right. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I loved from Little House on the Prairie, there was something they made where they scooped up snow yes. and then they put maple syrup yes. on it. And I would beg my mom for this. And I grew up in the Bay Area and she's like, 
there's no snow. <laughs> Where are you going to make this thing? And I actually, there's a uh, cookbook that is a Little House on the Prairie yes. cookbook that I got yes. from my friend, which is really cool. I love that they thought to do that, that yeah. so many people must have been enamored with all of these oh, prairie yes. recipes. Right. Uh, do you remember things like that from your childhood, too? Um, I remember the, the same scene in Little House in the Big Woods with, with the snow. Yeah. And I remember... Oh, gosh, there's a children's book. I should have brought it about, uh, maybe it's called Pancakes for Breakfast. I yeah. loved, it's funny now that I'm thinking of this, it makes sense that I turned out to be such a food lover. My favorite books were all about food. There was one called Panda Cake that I loved <laughs> and Chicken Soup with Rice. Oh my gosh, Chicken Soup with Rice by Arnold Lobel. That such is a, great a book. fabulous book. I'm oh, hungry for gosh. that right now. Just saying yes, it. it just, yep. There's something about reading about food to me that the food itself can never taste as good as it sounds in the book. Yeah. I have this with cartoons too. A stack of cartoon pancakes with the perfect pat of butter on top and then the syrup cascading yes. down like a waterfall. I have never <laughs> tasted a pancake as good. Or the sandwiches they ate in Yogi Bear. They don't <laughs> taste as good in person. And it was the same with yes. reading. Yeah. And it's probably good I never had a snowball with maple syrup, because it probably wouldn't have been as good as it sounded. I, I know. It did sound wonderful, though. I think that books can give you the truth of an experience, which you can never or maybe seldom achieve yeah. in real life. That's good writing. Yeah. So we better get to the question at okay. hand. Yes. Uh, less books, more eating. What would your last meal be? Now, did you? Oh, oh. so it is that, like my last meal. Yes. So, so I, that's how I had been thinking of that question. And then... I thought yesterday, well, maybe maybe she just means what was your last meal oh. that you just ate? So you had to eat something like really impressive before you came yeah, here right. so you could brag about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that would be popcorn and baked squash. That's my go-to dinner. Um, let's see. My last meal would probably be like a, a meatless spaghetti dinner with good bread. That sounds good to me. And because I'm a carbohydrate addicted sort of gal. Me too. Yes. Yeah. Did you say with bread? Yes. What you said? Okay. Yes. Uh, so is this a comfort food? It is a comfort food, but, but, um, you know what even more would be a comfort food would be good macaroni and cheese. And, uh, you know, in the joy of cooking, there's a great baked macaroni and cheese recipe. So you say you don't cook, but right. you are referencing a cookbook. Is this something right. you would assign to someone else to do for you? Well, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Well, you know, I had two. I have two daughters, and when they were living at home and very and little, I I was that earth mother kind of mom, and so did all that kind of stuff. Natural peanut butter and the very weedy bread. Right. right. Yes. 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 All the things and we wanted to trade our lunch exactly. for at school. Exactly. <laughs> right. But baked macaroni and cheese was a favorite of everybody's. And my daughters, when they come home, still really <laughs> love that. Nancy, a.k.a. the Carbohydrate Queen, also mentioned that she wanted her mac and cheese with a side of bread. So what kind of bread would you want with your mac and cheese? Well, I'd want, um, I think, the Grand Central sourdough. And toasted or untoasted? Untoasted. Butter? Butter. Okay. So it has to be really fresh then, I yes. feel. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and what goes into this mac and cheese? Well, just actually macaroni and cheese and milk. Yeah. And then you just bake it. Oh, and then you put breadcrumbs on top. And that's very important are those breadcrumbs because that crunchy thing is what makes the macaroni and cheese in my mind. And, and that's what separates it from the not so great 
craft mac, the boxed macaroni yes. and cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would you use, um, would you make fresh breadcrumbs maybe from this sourdough loaf or do you use the kind that are in the can? I, I use the kind that are in the can. Okay. I'm not I, judging you. I know. Just good, asking. good. Yeah. No, no, no food shame. No food shame. <laughs> When's the last time you had this dish? Oh my gosh. A couple of years ago for sure. I think, I think, although, you know, this awful weather and, and, and the awful things that are going on in the world, I think I'm really retreating to things like baked macaroni and cheese or, you know, in college, I used to make hamburger stroganoff. Oh, yeah. I know there are plenty. I mean, that's so ridiculous. And th- and that's actually what we're going to have tonight. <laughs> Is that with the sour cream and the egg noodles and the, the ground yeah, beef? Yeah. So um, although we do it on rice instead oh, okay. of egg noodles, but cream of mushroom soup. Oh, yeah. Real Midwestern. <laughs> <laughs> so this sounds also like foods you'd want to eat when you read because reading such a cozy activity, yeah. just curled up with a bowl of mac and cheese right. and a big stack of bread. Right. Yes. But there are some books that there are some books that I find you can read when you're eating and some books that are not um, particularly palatable to read when you're eating. Um, I don't have a high tolerance for violence in books in any case, but I don't want to read a book when I'm eating especially comfort food, with a lot of violence in yeah. it. You know, you just don't want that. And, of course, if it's a library book, you have to be very careful that you don't drop a, you know, sp- a fork full of macaroni and cheese on it. Although when it's your own cookbook, I love all the stains. Oh, yes. Because it shows, yes. look, I made this That's recipe. Right. And, yeah. I don't know, it looks nice and I, used in morning. I do. I like that, too. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. So I looked up the recipe in Joy of Cooking, the recipe that Nancy likes, and it's a pretty classic mac and cheese recipe with a few extra additions that I've never done before when I've made mac and cheese. So it starts with making a classic Mornay sauce, which is basically a cheese sauce. You start with making a roux, you add milk, and then the Joy of Cooking adds a little minced onion, bay leaf, paprika, and dry mustard. The Joy opts for a large pile of sharp cheddar, and then the whole thing is just slumped into a casserole dish, topped with breadcrumbs, and baked until the lid is crusty and the inside is bubbly and creamy. And I'm drooling saying this right now. The Joy of Cooking is such a classic cookbook. It's been around since the 1930s, and so many people have learned to cook from this book. Everyone from your mom, and no, that's not a your mom joke, (laughs) to Julia Child. 
So I was so thrilled to track down Ethan Becker, who is the grandson of the author of The Joy of Cooking, who still works on the book. Uh, My name is Ethan Becker, and I am one of the co-authors of The Joy of Cooking. I've actually been working on the book since 1968. Oh, wow. My grandmother's name was Irma von Starkloff Rombauer, and she's published the first book in 1931. Where do you live? I'm eight miles east of the North Carolina line in the middle of the Smoky Mountains. I live 22 minutes from the nearest Coke machine. If you think you've seen marinara-stained, dog-eared copies of The Joy of Cooking on many a cookbook shelf... That's because it has sold more than 18 million copies. It's in its seventh edition, and it's really cool. It's a family affair. So Irma wrote the first edition in the early 30s. She passed the book down to her daughter. Then she passed it down to her son, Ethan. And now Ethan's son is working on the newest edition from his home in Portland, Oregon. And the story behind The Joy of Cooking is quite interesting. So in 1930, just one year before Irma Rombauer self-published The Joy of Cooking, her husband committed suicide. She was 52 years old. He left her with... $6,000 in savings, and she ended up using half of that money to publish the book. And I love the fact that she was 52 years old when she published this because Julia Child has always been my hero. Uh, And part of the reason for that is because she got her start so late, uh, which gives me hope that I can still create great things when I'm older. Uh, So Julia Child was 49 years old when she published her first book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which is one of the most classic cookbooks out there. Uh, And she was 51 years old when her first TV show, The French Chef, started airing. Uh, So yeah, Julia Child was in her 50s. Irma Rombauer was in her 50s. I think a lot of people think that once you get through your 20s and 30s, that's kind of it for putting out great things. So I think it's very promising. A lot of people have the joy of cooking on their shelves. It is just maybe in my mind, the most classic book. I'm 37 and even people my age use it as a reference all the time. But in 1931, what was the cookbook scene like? What was it like uh, for your grandmother putting this book out on the scene? What did it mean to people of that time? It was an odd time because of the depression was about to start. There was no power appliances, no dishwashers. A lot of people were still, uh, well, they were obviously cooking with gas, but also with coal. Cooking was considered to be a chore that people who were of lower station, as it were, were likely most likely to be involved in. And here came my grandmother saying, you know, you can have fun with this. It's not necessarily a chore. Be joyful about it. And it struck a chord. And it didn't hurt that she was a very personable person, a person who knew how to tell a story and who loved radio, which was, uh, there was no TV, and, uh, and she interviewed well. And she got a lot of attention, and people bought books, which was a good thing because she was broke. <laughs> she was a widow. Uh, her husband had died, and she was 50 two years old, and she had, was a very accomplished hostess, but she didn't have a marketable skill in the, in, as we think of it. So she wrote the book, and it's interesting because one of her relatives actually said to her, but Irma, if you wrote the book, who would buy it? She was a great baker, but she wasn't really known as a cook, but she knew who in the family had the best recipes. So The Joy of Cooking has contained both Nancy's favorite baked mac and cheese recipe and also a stovetop recipe since the original 1931 edition. And these recipes have stayed with the books through all seven editions. But in the 1990s, there was a change made to the stovetop recipe. 
I was in email contact with Ethan's son, John Becker, who seems to know more about these things. Uh, and he said in the 90s, they swapped out the classic roux-based cheese sauce with evaporated milk, eggs, and cheese, which to my knowledge, I've never had a mac and cheese made with evaporated milk, but I imagine it makes it very creamy. In the email, John says it gives the dish a, quote, desirable gooey texture with a bit less effort. He also says we should have called it Easy Mac. Copyrights be damned. He goes on to say we are currently working on the new edition and do not plan on changing much in the macaroni department except to suggest adding one cup of chopped drained kimchi. We love the cheese and fermented funk together. So I kind of love this, that the joy of cooking actually rolls with the times. I mean, it is kind of like the gray lady of cookbooks, but now they're throwing kimchi into the mix. I love kimchi and have never once thought of putting it in mac and cheese. And I can tell you what I'm eating for dinner tonight. That is producer Aaron Mason, by the way. And Hi. yeah, I've had that before at a Seattle restaurant called Cheekies. And yeah, it makes your mouth kind of pucker. So you get the oh. creaminess and then you get this puckery sourness. It's a really nice juxtaposition. Sweet word. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the blue box versus homemade macaroni and cheese. Should you feel shamed if you prefer the blue box version? And Nancy Pearl will tell us what kind of shoe she wears. Yes, it is hard hitting news on your last meal. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. All right, we're just going to go head first into the history of macaroni and cheese. But if you are a loyal listener and you listen to episode number two with Chris Ballou, who is from the band The Presidents of the United States and Casper Baby Pants, you know that we already told you this. Uh, so if you listen to that episode, you may recall that Chris chose macaroni as his last meal, albeit sans cheese. Salt and pepper, elbow macaroni, salt and pepper. So in that joyful little episode, that is actually my favorite episode. I highly recommend listening if you haven't yet. Uh, we turn to Santa Monica's Cliff Wright. Cliff won a James Beard Award for his cookbook, A Mediterranean Feast. He is a pasta historian. Macaroni and cheese as a dish that Americans know certainly became very popular in 1937 when the Kraft Company put it into a box. But it obviously existed before then. We've got Thomas Jefferson, who was quite an Italophile. You know, he goes off to Italy on various diplomatic missions. And because he was our first gastronomic president, he was interested in a variety of Italian foods. He brought back with him a pasta extrusion machine. Jefferson more than likely encountered pasta with cheese in Italy. And the cheese would have been Parmesan. But the main cheese in the American colonies was cheddar cheese. So it's likely that it began to be made with cheddar cheese. But as far as macaroni and cheese goes, that's the most elemental type of food 
using macaroni that we know. And the earliest example of that is in an anonymous cookbook called the Liber de Coquina, which was written in Latin by someone who was involved with the Neapolitan court under Charles II of Anjou in Naples. And in that book, the recipe is called de lasanas, which means on lasagna. And it is made by sheets of lasagna that are cooked in water and then tossed with grated cheese. So that would be the first evidence of macaroni and cheese. It is absolutely impossible to talk about macaroni and cheese without bringing up the blue box. So many of us grew up with the Kraft mac and cheese, probably our parents, maybe even your grandparents, since that was invented in 1937. And some people have never had homemade mac and cheese before. Like the Kraft blue box is all that they know and love. Uh, So a few years ago, I wrote an article for The Stranger, which is one of Seattle's alternative weekly papers. It was probably the most fun thing I ever got to do for them because I took on the challenge of eating 10 boxes of mac and cheese over the course of two evenings. So I ate eight boxes one night and two boxes the next night. Don't know why. I kind of just wanted to let the yellow number five wash all over me. Uh, And it was really hard. So... How much, how much of each box did you eat? Just like a taste or did well, you go full bowl? You know, I tried to I tried not to do the amateur thing and eat a little of each. But, you know, at the beginning, you're hungry and it tastes good. <laughs> so you overeat. And then by the end, I really did have the sodium sweats. And I was laying on the floor of my apartment saying, no more, no more. And my boyfriend was like, you're a journalist. You can do this. And uh, I pressed on and I tried some of all of them. Uh, But if you next time you go to the grocery store, go to the mac and cheese section. I don't know if you've noticed how much that section has expanded, like boiling macaroni, if you will. So there are now boxes of mac and cheese that are kosher, gluten free, organic. There are noodles shaped like cows, bunnies, dragons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There are SpongeBob SquarePants noodles. Uh, There are white cheddar shells, biohazard orange, whole grain elbows. There is chipotle flavor. There's herb flavor. Uh, There's that fancy kind that my mom would never buy with the pouch of the goopy cheese instead of the powder. That to me was like the rich people's mac and cheese. And Everybody has now gotten into the mac and cheese game, including Pepperidge Farm. Uh, You know, they make those uh, cheddar cheese goldfish crackers. Well, now they make a fish-shaped mac and cheese, and it comes in these horrendous flavors like cheesy pizza and nacho cheese. And I ate one of those for the 10 boxes, and it was absolutely the worst out of all of them. Uh, My mouth was like burning with salt. Uh, But for this experiment... I had to narrow it down because there were too many to test. So um, I narrowed it down to mac and cheese that uses orange powdered cheese. And through all 10 of these, and I did try a kosher and a gluten-free and different shapes, the winner was the classic Kraft macaroni and cheese, the blue box. It really was the best. It had the best texture, uh, the most even flavor. It wasn't too salty. The fake cheesiness was perfect. Um, And I was actually more surprised by second place. Uh, I am not gluten-free, but I loved the Annie's gluten-free rice pasta and cheddar. The rice pasta was really, the noodles were kind of big and squishy. It was real good. So yeah, you don't have to do that, guys. You can just go get the blue box and know it's the best. But I wanted to talk real quick about how I make my blue box of mac and cheese because I feel like everybody has their way. And at the beginning, when I started making it as a kid, I would follow the directions on the side and it has too much milk. I feel like it's liquidy. I like mine to be thick, almost chalky. So I use no milk and I only use butter. And uh, you have to mix a lot and you have to really get the cheese powder 
mixed in and otherwise it gets clumpy. But that's how I make mine. Re- no milk at all. No milk. Not even at all. a splash. Not even a splash. Wow. Yeah. Never heard of that. Which is good because I mostly eat mac and cheese if I'm hungover or in a pinch. And so you don't always have milk, right. which you usually have butter. Um, and I like to add tapatio. And then if you want to make it a full meal, then you can throw the tuna in. But perhaps the most interesting thing about Kraft macaroni and cheese, as if me talking about adding tuna is not interesting enough, uh, the interesting part is where that cheese powder came from. It was actually developed by the military to feed soldiers in the field during the World Wars. According to Anastasia Mark Salcido, who wrote the book Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat, the U.S. military was experimenting with dehydrating all kinds of foods. They were making MREs uh, and people wanted cheese. So they tried to dehydrate cheese and it just didn't break down the way other foods break down when dehydrated. There's a whole bunch of science involving liquids and proteins and acids. And I just can't even begin to explain it to you. But I will say that the cheese was super weird and it slumped into a powder. Uh, But they're like, you know, we can use this anyway. Add a little water. It will reconstitute as cheese. And powdered cheese was officially invented in 1943 by USDA dairy scientist George Sanders. Took the powder, sent it overseas to army cooks where it was used as an ingredient. After the war ended, there was a whole little cheese dehydrating industry that had sprouted up and it had excess product and it also had no customers. So it quickly turned to the grocery manufacturers like Kraft and Frito-Lay and Nabisco and it provided this cheese powder as an ingredient where it soon began to appear coating things like Cheetos and as an ingredient in things like mac and cheese cheese and cheesy crackers. Salcido says that 50% of the products that we buy in the grocery store are tied to the military. Everything from deli meat to energy bars, which is actually kind of creepy. Sliced bread, uh, some of the packaging in the produce department, all of this comes uh, from developing food for soldiers. But how many of you make your mac and cheese from scratch? If you've never done this before, you should try it. It's actually quite simple and insanely delicious. Stephanie Stiavetti is the co-author of Melt, The Art of Macaroni and Cheese. It's a macaroni and cheese cookbook. I have it on my shelf. It has 75 macaroni and cheese recipes in it. I've probably made three, but I've looked through the book about 100 times because everything sounds so delicious. What do you think are the best cheeses to make mac and cheese with? So I'm going to take my artisan cheese card for this <laughs> because like I love a good mac and cheese with like a $30 pound cheese and I got a whole, wrote a whole book about it. But honestly, like some of the best cheeses that you can make a simple dish with are the super melty, super stretchy cheeses, which is why people love Velveeta, right? Because it's made to melt. Like if you look at the ingredients, it's very small percentage of cheese and a huge percentage of emulsifiers that make it stretchy and hold together and super creamy. Um, So I would say, honestly, the best cheeses for making mac and cheese are probably like just the Monterey Jack that you get down at your regular grocery store. Like cheddar cheese doesn't melt really well. It gets kind of clumpy. But if you mix it like 50% cheddar cheese with 50% uh, Monterey Jack or a Fontina, like it melts really well. And then if you want to add a little bit of oomph, if you were to add like 10 to 20% grated Parmesan or even something a little bit more non-standard like goat cheese, you'll get this really beautiful dish that like kind of takes you on a flavor journey. You've got the like medium sharpness of the cheddar and you've got the creaminess of the Monterey Jack and you've got this little bit of sweet gritty bite from the Parmesan and then maybe just a touch of tart from the goat cheese. I just want it to be stringy. Like if I go out and have mac and cheese and there's not that string when I pull the fork up, I'm disappointed immediately. Like I want it to be really creamy and melty. Why do you think that mac and cheese is basically the comfort food for Americans? 
Well, Americans love cheese. I read some crazy statistic that I don't remember like totally accurately, but some huge number of Americans eat like three pounds of cheese a year. And that's a lot of cheese. And I probably, when I was writing this book, I ate like 20 pounds of cheese in that year. And even eating that much cheese, I still love it. You know, people in this country, in this culture, love fatty, creamy, hearty. Like when people talk about diets and they talk about cheating, this is the stuff that they cheat with because it's so beloved and you eat it and it trips off all those little sensors in our brain that says, look, salt, fat, comfort, this is so good. And there's just something about mac and cheese that makes people happy. Like when people see this book and they see it's a book of macaroni and cheese, they go, oh my God, that is amazing. And even if you grew up on the blue box, like mac and cheese still has a special place in your life. If you are a normal human being, you are drooling right now. You are plotting how to get yourself to the nearest bathtub filled to the brim with macaroni and cheese so you can immerse your entire body into it and use a fork to eat your way out. Now is the moment we've all been waiting for. Remember earlier I teased about Nancy Pearl's shoes? I know. I couldn't wait to know what kind of shoes she was wearing either. Here we go. What are stereotypes that people assume you're going to be like because you're a librarian? Well, there's the whole shoe issue, you know. Ugly shoes? Ugly shoes. You can always, ugly but comfortable (laughs) shoes. Now, that has been, you know, mitigated a little bit because of Dansko. Clogs are really comfortable and everything. But it used to be that if you went to a, um, the American Library Association conference and and you looked at people's shoes, they were mostly <laughs> mostly not the kind of shoes that you would want to wear. But librarians are on their feet a lot. Right. So you really do need very comfortable shoes. That's so funny. I totally have this image in my mind that popped up of librarian shoes. I think of those janitor shoes and nurse's shoes, those black lace-up yeah. Uh-huh. Baked potato looking <laughs> shapeless shoe. I think of brown. Oh, yeah. Brown, brown lace shoes. Another stereotype was the bun. And one of the things I had suggested back when we were planning the librarian action figure, and I, I had some input into it, um, I, I thought there should be a removable bun. Put it on and take it off. Let her hair down. And let her hair in a down. While. Yeah. Right. right. Um, is the shushing real? Did you used to shush people when you worked in the library? Um. I was not a shusher. I was a children's librarian, but I was not a shusher because I'm too soft-hearted for that. Uh-huh. But there were many librarians who were shushers, and librarians were, you know, the keeper of the library, which was a quiet place. And it's no longer seen that way, understood that way. It's a lot of power being a librarian. There was. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You know. The gatekeeper to the books. Sometimes I hear people say, I just can't read. I'm not a reader. Do you believe that that's true? Do you think everyone can be a reader if they found the right book? That's exactly what I would say. I think that um, not being a reader means that you have not found the book that shows you what reading can do for you, how pleasurable reading is. I mean, I'm like about the joy of reading. The joy of reading, the joy of cooking, the joy of Nancy Pearl. That was Nancy Pearl's last meal. Nancy Pearl is the author of the Booklust series, including Booklust, recommended reading for every mood, moment, and reason. You can also hear her on NPR or find her in a carb coma somewhere hunkered down with a good book. Thank you so much to Ethan Becker from The Joy of Cooking, Stephanie Stiavetti, co-author of Melt, The Art of Macaroni and Cheese. And thanks to Anastasia Mark Salcido, author of Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat. Thanks to my producer, Aaron Mason, and music, as always, by Prom Queen. And if you're digging this podcast, if you like your last meal, 
pretty please leave a review on iTunes or subscribe. It really does help get the word out. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. Thank you.